Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, today I'm going to continue my discussion. This will be um, chapter seven of our uh, ongoing interest in hepatocellular carcinoma. So I'm not going to recap everything we've done so far. That's going to actually end up being a VeraMed video lecture where I'm going to recombine everything and put it into a uh, coherent one hour long episode. Uh, right now though, I'm gonna give you a real quick recap, just where we've gotten so far. This is of course um, immediately synoptic. I'm not gonna cover any of the details. So some of the things we've decided we um, have been able to find in the scientific literature about hepatocellular carcinoma or HCC are that hepatosteatosis promotes HCC development and it does so through an enhancement of liver inflammation and disruption of probably both autophagy and apoptosis, at the same time enhancing fibrogenesis and then fibrosis. Seems that insulin resistance and diabetes may be an unrelated pathogenic process, but still induced, or at least it's correlated positively with hepatosteatosis. So people with insulin-resistant type 2 diabetes are more likely to develop hepatosteatosis, that is a fatty liver, than people that are not, except, of course, with alcoholics, where you have alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is another segue into the potential for HCC, as are hepatitis of, uh, B and C viruses. Regardless of all of, what I, all of those uh, minor details, obesity is definitely linked to HCC. It enhances development through lipid accumulation within the hepatocytes. Um, and it leads into a chronic low-grade liver inflammation involving various cytokines, of course, pro-inflammatory, and adipokines. Now, again, we've covered this already. Uh, another thing now, uh, switching gears a little bit, is we discussed a lot about biofuel. Glucose utilization ultimately promotes a fatty liver because you get fatty uh, deposits that are not conducted through the carnitine and then beta oxidation pathway within the mitochondria. Rather, the lipid accumulates as triacylglycerol droplets within the liver. And then you get streaks generated, basically. So uh, aerobic glycolysis, just like a lot of cancers, the so-called Warburg or Warburg effect, is definitely in place here in the diseased liver. Glycolytic enzymes, uh, which of course are going to be processing the glucose, which is going to be a major biofuel here, like phosphatokinase and pyruvate kinase, play numerous pleiotropic roles, and uh, we went over all of that. Uh, they can induce a pathobiochemical or pathobiochemical uh, pathway collapse that ultimately leads to uh, avenues and pathways leading to HCC. Uh, weight loss by bariatric surgery or diet or exercise can all diminish metabolic syndrome and, uh, and associated type 2 diabetes. Um, and other therapeutic interventions can be also uh, directly used to address it, such as pharmacotherapy. Um, however, that's not a treatment for hepatocellular carcinoma. Current clinical guidelines usually target some kind of immune activation of T cells either a CTL4 blockade or a PD-1 blockade. Uh, chemotherapy is still commonly used in HCC. Of course, surgery, or that is swapping out the liver altogether. 
Um, uh, also, there is a new class of uh, compounds that have been on the scene that have been become probably more frontline than any of the other ones so far. And those are the RTKs in the inhibitors, that is receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, and uh, these are probably now becoming the most common um, and standardized uh, therapy for early stage or prodromal even hepatocellular carcinomas. Let's get started with the new material. This is going to come from a paper from a Journal of Cancer, published September of 2018. So we're talking, what, seven months old, something like that, eight months old. Um, let me tell you just the highlights of it, of that paper. And then we're going to keep moving. This paper will be my way of introducing another biochemical phenomenon that seems to be linked to hepatocellular carcinoma, one we have not covered yet. So please pay attention. <clears throat> There's something called the fibroblast activation protein, or FAP. <coughs> FAP actually is a serine protease, and it's been reported in fibroblasts and in some carcinoma cells. It correlates with poor patient outcome. In fact, FAP can be induced under hypoxia, which, as you will recall from my previous discussions, uh, is one of the major contributing environmental patho pathological systems that seems to be prodromal for lots of cancers, and the hepatocellular carcinoma is no exception. So you can induce FAP under hypoxia, and of course that's vital in the malignant behavior of most cancer cells. Okay. Um, all right, so we really don't know what the role of FAP is in correlation with hypoxia, but it's been investigated, and this paper was the first one to really take a look at it. To make a, a very long story short, uh, a Cox analysis showed that HIF-1-alpha FAP combination were the e independent predictor for an overall survival and time to recurrence in post-surgical HCC. So, okay, what do I mean by Cox analysis? Okay, well, let me, let me explain this to you. Cox regression analysis, which is also known as proportional hazards regression, is indeed a method, a statistical method um, for investigating the effects of when you have several variables, and you know HCC fits this perfectly, <clears throat> upon a time-specified event, which takes takes a certain interval to occur, okay? So multiple interview intervals or, or multiple variables over an interval of time or an event ontology, which is what I've been suggesting to you. Now, in the context of an outcome such as death, which can be the final outcome of cancer, HCC in particular, <coughs> this is known as Cox regression for survival analysis. And in this particular paper that was that was used here, it was deployed. So more again about this uh, hypoxia. Remember that the HIF1-alpha and, uh, as it turns out, the FAP expression were both associated with serum alpha-fetal protein, or AFP, as well as TNM, where T describes the size of the tumor and any spread of the cancer into nearby tissue. N describes the spread of the cancer to nearby lymph node. And M describes metastasis and vascular invasion. So HIF-1-alpha and FAP expression were associated with serum alpha-fetal protein, which is a um, indicator, a biomarker for liver damage. AFP is a liver damage uh, biomarker in the serum. 
I just told you it was also, they, those two proteins also are linked to TNM. Then I told you the Cox regression analysis was used and that indeed it showed that HIF1-alpha and FAP combination were independent predictors for OS or overall survival and what's known as TTR, which is time to recurrence in post-surgical patients, people that already had surgery um, to ablate some of the cancerous tissues. Now, there's another system that they used in this study. It's called the Kaplan-Meier analysis. And that's basically another statistical method. It's non-parametric, and it's used to estimate the survival function from lifetime data. In medical research, it's often used to measure the fraction of patients living for a certain amount of time after a treatment. <clears throat> so again, it's another analysis they carried out here to look at this FAP, HIF1-alpha um, axis of symmetry associated with HCC prodromal and ongoing. And what this Kaplan-Meier analysis revealed in this paper was that the patient with the high levels, patients with high levels of HIF1-alpha and FAP and combined HIF1-alpha and FAP had the shortest OS and TTR, both of which are not desirable, right? The shortest overall survival, the lowest overall survival and the shortest time to recurrence, both of which seem to be associated directly using Kaplan-Meier analysis with HIF1-alpha and FAP. Um, okay, so a few more things and we'll go, get away from this paper. In vitro experiments showed that FAP was increased in hypoxic HCC cancer cell lines in parallel with that of HIF1-alpha, okay? And three EMT markers were also associated with this uptick. EMT stands for epithelial mesenchymal transition. And I know if you've listened to my Barrett Med lectures, I've talked a lot about that transition uh, that often uh, also occurs in aging, uh, as it turns out. So there are some EMT markers. Um, they are E. cadherin, uh, the snail protein, and the twist protein. These are mostly, E. cadherin, of course, is a calcium binding, um, matrix protein-associated alteration of calcium flux. Snail and twist are both um, have to do with the uh, movement of molecules in and out of cells, and they can also uh, induce transcriptional events. So what this paper basically told, told me was that an upregulation of FAP, uh, remember that's fibroblast activation protein, so it's not surprising it shows up here. Upregulation of FAP in HCC cancer cells under hypoxia can be indicative of a very poor prognosis in patients. Okay, so that's so far. So now we know that we've got a uh, serine protease. Remember, that's the FAP associated with the system. So what are proteases? Well, let's go back a little bit, uh, back to 2012, where this was first described. In authentic biochemistry, just like what I do in uh, Verev Med, I try to go to the current literature, find papers that are germane about a given topic. Remember, we're trying to completely understand hepatocellular carcinoma, right? And so that's why I've been going through various papers. I think so far we've covered over 20 papers, if I count them all up. <clears throat> and what I want to do is give you multiple avenues to understand this disease. It's a complex disease, right? It's a, There's a constellation of events that occur, and not all of them occur in all 
prodromal phases or indeed in later stages of HCC. So if you are a clinician, you want to know all the potential targets that may be involved in um, or maybe only be biomarkers in the, the progression of HCC. If you don't know them all, you might miss one of the ways of dealing, uh, dealing with the disease, either pharmac pharmacotherapeutically or via diet or even surgically down the road. So protease inhibition in HCC was first described in uh, a journal called uh, Hepatitis Monthly and published in 2012, October uh, of that year. Um, what the title of the paper was kind of tells us all. Alpha-1 antitrypsin. So now you've got a protein that, that blocks protease activity because trypsin is a protease. Alpha-1 antitrypsin in the pathogenesis of hepatocellular carcinoma. Okay, so that's the title of the paper published way back in 2012. Okay, um, all right. So let's take a look at what this says. First of all, what is alpha-1 antitrypsin? Why don't we just call it A1AT or A1AT? A1AT, okay? It's the most abundant liver-derived, highly polymorphic glycoprotein in the plasma, okay? Any hereditary deficiency of A1AT uh, is called A1ATD, okay? So A1ATD is a deficiency in the antitrypsin protein in blood. And when you get a hereditary deficiency of that, it's a consequence of the accumulation of polymers of that protein in the endoplasmic reticulum of hepatocytes and other one A1AT producing cells. So the ER is where this is produced because it's a glycoprotein, as you know. One of the clinical manifestations of A1AT deficiency is liver disease in childhood and later on cirrhosis and or hepatocellular carcinoma in adulthood, early adulthood, late adulthood, depending on um, all the other factors that may lead down that uh, paradigmatic shift to disease. So A1AT is a predominant circulatory protease inhibitor, right? okay? It's also an acute phase reactant protein, and its plasma concentrations increase three to five-fold during the host response to inflammation and tissue injury. So it's also one of the many proteins that are involved in acute phase. Um, it usually is a pro-inflammatory response uh, that involves tissue injury. So uh, in particular, in our discussion, it's the one that's involved in liver damage, liver damage, right? So A1AT is the archetypical member of a serpin superfamily of structurally related proteins. Now, what are serpins? Serpins, S-E-R-P-I-N, are serine proteinase inhibitors. So... A1AT is part of the serpent family. Remember, that's an inhibitor of proteases. Okay. Now, the last paper we just talked about, the 2018 paper, was talking about proteases, right? Remember, the fat protein involved in cancer. So here we've got something that blocks the activity of proteases. That's what serpents do, all right? Now, these serpents are, have a, they're a huge family, and they have really remarkable structural homology to each other. It's, it's characterized, if you like, protein uh, chemistry. It's characterized by a dominant beta sheet, and there's a mobile reactive center loop within that beta sheet. 
and that presents a peptide sequence, a small peptide erupts from that um, beta sheet turning. Uh, and uh, what that works as is a pseudo substrate. Okay, once that protein takes on that configuration, it acts as a pseudo substrate for the target protease. So a deficiency in 1A, A1, excuse me, A1 at is the most common genetic cause of early onset panlobular emphysema. Okay. Now, what is panlobular emphysema? Okay, let me explain that to you. It's not the hepatocellular carcinoma. So this is why knowing multiple medical fields knowing the foundations of disease allows you to trace back how any of these players in a disease may have a common function, okay? So what is panlobular emphysema, and why is that a common genetic cause when you get a deficiency in A1AT to that disease? Okay, panlobular emphysema is a morphological descriptive type of emphysema depicted by permanent destruction of the entire acinus, which is a region of the lung supplied with air from a terminal bronchial. That's what the acinus is. It's distal to the respiratory bronchioles, and there's no obvious associated fibrosis with this disease. Basically, it involves an alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. It's, uh, this disease is also synonymous with panacinar emphysema, as you might guess. Uh, it's characterized by permanent destruction of those air spaces, the alveoli, distal to the respiratory bronchial. Okay? So the pathogenesis relates to an intrinsic imbalance in the activity of protease, particularly elastase, uh, released and an inhibitor of the protease, which is the alpha-1 antitrypsin. And again, the term panlobular just, I'm, I'm just trying to give as much detail as I can here, refers to the involvement of the entire acinus in contrast to the central lobular distribution, for example, that you can get in the emphysemas uh, just diagnosed and described for smokers, cigarette smokers, okay? I mean, maybe that's where you would have heard this before. See, I'm trying to cover things as much as I can in different medical fields. So deficiency in A1AT is, is a common genetic cause of panlobular emphysema, but also it's a common... Uh, a deficiency in it, common association with liver disease in childhood, and it can also manifest with cirrhosis, such as alcohol-induced, and or hepatocellular carcinoma in adulthood. So that's why this protein is being discussed. Some of the deficient variants accumulate in intracellular ER, as I just said, and that's in hepatocytes, if it's the hepatocellular carcinoma disease we're describing, and in other producing cells, for example, in the uh, what we just talked about in the acinar cells. So any, any, any cells that produce A1AT and become um, unable to synthesize the correct folded form, you get an inefficient secretion of the protein. And the protein has to be secreted because the target proteases are out there in the serum. So several point mutations of A1AT are known to cause a perturbation in protein structure with a consequent polymerization of the protein and intracellular accumulation in the ER. Okay, so let me just follow this real quickly through. Mutations responsible for the molecular instability of the protein occur in the hinges and the sliding regions of the protein, and that's involved in the reactive loop to the other end of the molecule. 
Again, this is protein chemistry talk. The effect of all those mutations allow a spontaneous opening of the main beta sheet I was just talking about of, of the protein molecule, which results in rapid insertion into the sheet of the reactive loop of the next molecule and the formation of a, what's known as a loop sheet polymer, the sheet meaning the beta sheet. That is, again, the secondary structure of the protein. So you get protein aggregation basically as a result, and it's happening in the liver and occurs in patients, particularly who are homozygous for the most common mutated variant, which is simply just called Z. Okay. All right. So now you get the idea. So what did this paper talk about? Results. Epidemiology studies revealed that severe A1ATD, that's the deficiency in that antitrypsin protein, is a significant risk factor for cirrhosis and HCC, unrelated to the presence of herpes B virus or C virus, okay? Either one of those infections, either one of those um, uh, viruses that affect the um, liver. However, so, so whether or not you have presence of HPV or HCE infection, A1AT deficiency is a significant risk factor for HCC. However, predisposition to HCC in moderate A1 ATD is rare. Probably happens in combination with the HPV or HCV infections. Okay. Uh, and there may be a lot of unknown risk factors, maybe, for example, such as drug, illicit drug use. It's assumed that accumulation of the polymers of the A1-ATD variants in the ER of the hepatocyte leads to damage of the hepatocyte by gain function mechanism. It also gives you an increased level of the mutant protein, and that's recognized as diagnostic and a prognostic marker of HCC. Okay, so that's basically what this paper tells us. Again, this is the first paper describing this back in 2012. What do we conclude from this? Clarification of a carcinogenic role of A1AT deficiency and identification of pro-inflammatory or some still unknown factor can lead to increased susceptibility to HCC, and that's, again, associated with the deficiency in this antitrypsin protein. And so eventually getting to that information is where we want to be so that we can figure out how this uh, antitrypsin is associated with disease. So more details of this, expression of mutant proteins. Uh, this is just now describing what happens when you get expression of a mutant protein in ER. Um, it causes a cellular response known as ER stress. So you get terminally misfolded proteins, because remember that's where glycosylation of those proteins occur. And they're select, selectively transported to the ER, from the ER, excuse me, to the cytosol, and they are subsequently ubiquitinated and degraded by the proteasome in a process called ERAD, which is ER-associated degradation. It's a subcellular degradation of misfolded proteins that came from the ER. Now, in the absence of efficient protein degradation, or if the accumulation of the misfolded protein in the ER overwhelms the de degradatory machinery, Several new induced ER response pathways are activated. One of them is the unfolded protein response, or UPR, which I've talked about in previous Varif Med lectures. UPR is a single transducing pathway, right, that activates a wide spectrum of genes in response to, so it's, it's going to control transcription. 
in response to accumulation of unfolded, misfolded, or even unassembled proteins when they have multiple domains, all in the endoplasmic reticulum. And they decrease translational initiation in that organelle in such a way that only specific RNAs can become translated. So it's all really bad news, okay? So any adult with, with any kind of A1ATD deficiency variation can retain those polymers and they can aggregate inducing ER stress. That, that some of that can be degraded or it can be retained. If you, if you cannot degrade enough of it, you get gain of, of a to toxic mechanism, which I just told you about. It could be the ERAD or UPR when it gets out of uh, step with uh, control over degradation. Uh, and that can lead to liver injury. Likewise, the degradation of the retained A1AT can ultimately lead to insoluble degraded aggregates, which can induce active autophagy, which then can become overwhelmed or saturated. And after all of that occurs, you can get altered regulation of several genes driving the proliferation uh, and eventual tumorogenesis of the cancer cell line. So that leads up, ultimately, all of this comes down to hepatic inflammation and HCC, prodromal. Now that's associated, you got the ER discussion I just told you, associated with mitochondrial autophagy or mitophagy. Um, and that's associated with mitochondrial injury. They're also present in the liver of the A1AT deficient system uh, cells. And that provides evidence that mitochondrial dysfunction is inv also involved in liver injury, and that's yet another mechanism of the A1AT deficiency. So you get an idea. You've got multiple organelle failure here. You've got an aggregate that's building up in the ER. You've got a change in gene expression, so it's going to be a lot of transcriptional changes. You've got a lot of uh, stress response that becomes overcome. You, you overcome even the autophagic response, and you go into a full-blown unfolded protein response, like an SOS response that they talk about bacteria. <clears throat> and those stress cells can then themselves become targets for uh, immune targeting systems, which can then further lead to degradation or maybe another pathway towards mutation, all of that leading to more inflammation because of synthesis of pro-inflammatory cytokines, more fibrogenesis, more fibrosis, ultimately leading to further tissue de degradation and ultimately to tissue proliferation because of fibrogenesis. That can then run you down the prodromal to the full-blown HCC. You get the idea why this antitrypsin system is so important. All right, so about ready to stop here for today. I just want to let you know that there are many clinical aspects that we can discuss that are biochemical. Hopefully you get that idea when I'm doing my authentic biochemistry series here. Um, and, and actually, there are a lot of diseases associated with serine proteases. Um, and so I want to next time go through what just serine proteases are involved with, how they can act as zymogen activators, they can act as a leukocyte elastase, and of course, something we've already covered in previous discussions, in fact, even in the HCC series, pro-hormone convertases or protein convertases, okay? All of those are roles for the function of serine proteases. And, here, and so we're going to link serine proteases with disease, then we're going to go back and talk about serine protease inhibitors, which are the serpents, Okay. So what I want to do now is stop this uh, uh, recording and next time we get meet, 
we are going to talk more about serine proteases, and we'll get back to our frank discussion of about cellular carcinoma. Hope you have a really pleasant afternoon. It, uh, you've got uh, uh, plenty of opportunity to do that, hopefully, and we will be talking to you real soon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry saying bye for now.